Well, hello there and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to figure out how we can prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our entrepreneurial dreams a reality. If this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome. Super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. You know, you know, you really know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And whether you are a old friend or a new friend today, you and I get to hang out with Pia Silva. And in this episode, I want you to look up for three specific things. Number one, how you can use Pia's four angles framework to create a brand that attracts your dream clients where they want to buy from you and you don't have to sell at all. Number two, behind the scenes of Pia's elegantly simple business model where right now at the time of this recording, she charges $40,000 for her primary service that she calls a brand up and it only takes one to two days of her client's time. And number three, how Pia got to that point, her initial offer was not $40,000. It was only $3,000. So we talk about how she positioned herself and built her business. So she was able to eventually charge $40,000 for one to two days of investment of the client's time. So much to dive into. Who is Pia Silva? Pia is a partner and brand strategist at Worst of All Design, where they build entire brands in one to three day intensives. She's also the founder of No BS Agency Mastery, where she teaches one to two person branding agencies how to scale to thirty thousand dollar month without hiring employees she is a tedx speaker a forbes contributor podcast host and author of bad ass your brand so with all that said please enjoy this incredible conversation with pia silva if you had to pick between a making a ton of money b being happy healthy and surrounded with people you love or c making a meaningful impact on the world which would you choose The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast. Pia, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. This is going to be an absolute blast. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, I love your book. And I already told you before we, recorded, I, before we even recorded this, I sent it to two friends of mine. So I'm excited to dive into your content and all the incredible journey that you've been on over the past few years. But I wanted to start with a story that you tell in your book. And it actually, uh, I'll take us, I'll set the scene a little bit. We're in New York. It's October 2008. It's a Sunday afternoon. And you and your, hen- your friends are headed to a place called the Blind Tiger. <laughs> I would love for you to know. I would love for you to know what happened that night uh, and, and what that has to do with badass branding. Oh man, um, yes, that was a magical night. I walked into a bar on a Sunday afternoon and saw my future husband, and turned to my friends and said, "Hands off, ladies, he's mine," and walked right up to him and bat in my eyes and was like, buy me a drink. And we were just like inseparable after that. So, Mm. um, I think I tell the story because, uh, gosh, there's so many parallels between business and dating because there's so much about relationships. But in that particular instance, it's like, look, this is how I am. You know, I know what I like. I know what I want. I go for it. If it doesn't work out fine next. And I kind of treat my business the same way, but it worked out in this 
in this situation. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's beautiful. And I love just, I mean, I'll tell you a little bit of behind the scenes of like, cause I reached out to you. I think I came across, we had a mutual guest on the show and I came across your site and I'm like, oh my God, this person has her, her branding shit together. She practices what she preaches. And I love that story in the beginning about meeting, you tell this story in your book about meeting your husband. It's like, you're just unapologetic about who you were. And I think you had mentioned something about, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, like your girlfriends told you that you needed to do things a different way, or you needed to schmooze guys or be oh, something other yeah. than you were. Is that, is that kind of how it worked? <laughs> Yeah, you know, women, they play the game. They were like, I think you're coming on too strong. He's not the dating type. I was like, I'll be the judge of that. Don't worry about it. And uh, you know what? He wasn't. We laugh about that now that he just wasn't that kind of, he was very, he was not in long-term relationships, but we just clicked and he was like, I'm not going to be like that with this woman. And it just worked out. It's mm. serendipitous. That's beautiful. So let's, let's, I want to, I always like to start with like a few fun stories. There's another story I came across in your TED talk. Uh, where you went on a trip with uh, with Steve, and I don't know if this was before, or after. Uh, obviously, it was after you met, so that's kind of a no duh thing. But um, tell us about who Aragorn is and what that <laughs> what that adventure was like once you once you got off the airplane and set the scene there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we had been together for a couple of years, and we had been freelancing. We had just been just uh, hustling our butts off just to make it in New York City piecing together income. And so at a certain point, we just wanted to go on an adventure. So we found this farm, this organization that connects you with farms all around the world. Basically just connect with someone and then they invite you to be like farm hands. And in exchange, you can have like room and board or, you know, we were allowed to eat off the farm and camp on the camp on the land. And so of course I picked a place that was in the British Virgin Islands because if you're going to go do this, you might as well do it in paradise. Of course. And this guy Aragorn, I mean it was the only farm anywhere like this and this guy Aragorn like barely responded to us. He was like, "Sure, come." We were like, "Okay." So we like bought our tickets and we get out of the airport and there's there's nothing there and he said, "Just walk down the street and turn right and ask for Aragorn." We were like, "What does that even mean?" And sure enough, we like get to this island and we walk down the only road and we get to the beach and we ask someone for Aragorn and everyone knows Aragorn because it's a small island and and there he was and it was he was right but we were taking such a leap <laughs> to trust this man who sent us like all of two emails with three sentences that were like yeah sure you can stay on my farm for as long as you want here's how you find me but it ended up being uh, a really rich and incredibly. Um, formative experience for us. So I'm glad we did it. Yeah. And it's so funny because I can vividly picture that as a traveler myself, I know what it's like to get off in like, uh, like I'm picturing Bali. Like when I got off the airplane mm -hmm. in Bali with my wife, it's like all the people are trying to like, like pounce on you to give you a ride. You have like a bajillion people and it's kind of scary. And then you're trying to find the one person. And I can only imagine just like walking out and be like, okay, where's Aragorn? <laughs> and where do no, I go Brandon, now? Like, I, <laughs> I know, I know the scene you're talking about. This was the opposite of that. There was okay. nobody around. We were like walking down this dirt path and there was nobody anywhere. And then we kind of got to the beach and, we're, and just asked somebody on the, I mean, it was it was not like that bustling thing that you're imagining. It was like an empty island airport yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. It was great. It, it's a lot of fun. And I think it speaks yes. a lot to your willingness to dive feet first into stuff and just test stuff and maybe challenge the main assumptions that we all have. It's like, I think that the, what I admired about 
when I came across the fact that you did that is the fact that you didn't have all your ducks in the row and you wanted to see if it was something that was sustainable, if you liked the, the living and that that translated in some valuable life lessons that I think um, as I have studied your brand and as we're going to dive into today, it's kind of apparent that that's kind of your philosophy is just like, let's just dive in and see what happens and, and <laughs> learn from the experience, no matter if it's good, bad, good, ugly, all that good stuff. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think doing that a lot um, makes it easier to do it in the future. And I think that's helped me a lot in business. And I, I wasn't anticipating that, of course, but if I look back, that is probably what makes me strongest in my business now. Mm -hmm. Love that. Okay. So let's zoom into one or two more stories and then we'll dive into some of the, the content here. One of the main things you share in your book too, is kind of this kind of quote unquote kitchen table moment. So I don't know if this, like if I'm mixing the timelines here, but you go back, you, you're, you return from paradise and you start working on your branding agency. Can you kind of zoom in on that moment and what happened and what the realization was that you had there? Yeah, well, we decided that we were going to start our business while we were living on this island. So we came back and just decided, well, I don't know what we're going to do. We had no idea what to do, but you know, I went on Craigslist looking for clients. So we just hustled for the first couple of years, um, looking for clients wherever we could. And it took three years. We, we did all right for those three years, but three years into our business, I call it the kitchen table moment because every entrepreneur Maybe they weren't in the kitchen, but usually it's in the kitchen. You find yourself kind of breaking down because you're at some sort of pivotal moment where, you know, shit has hit the fan, you're, you're at the bottom and you have to make a change. And that was really um, what happened for us. We, it, you know, I tell people now, I don't think I said this in the book, but we were, we were on like 250,000 at that point. Like we, it's not that we were not making any money. It's that we weren't making any profit. <laughs> and so we were hustling and working so hard. And yet still we were in deep debt at that point. And anybody who's been an entrepreneur and had that kitchen table moment knows what that feels like. You just feel like you need to shut your doors and admit defeat. And you wonder if you can really do this. And I think it is a critical moment in every entrepreneur's journey because that's when it's really your feet are to the fire. You're put to the test. Are you going to get up and figure it out? Or are you going to admit defeat and go get a job? And mm -hmm. I did not want to get a job, but I definitely thought at, for a few moments there that I had to. And I'm glad, obviously, that I didn't. Mm. Okay. So let's teleport like almost to now. And then we'll kind of fill in the gaps between <laughs> the kitchen yeah. table moment and now. So I love simplicity. Like when I see simplicity, like elegant simplicity, it makes me very happy. That and spreadsheets make me very happy for some reason. I love Ooh, a good me spreadsheet. Too. Like, yeah, I love a good spreadsheet. <laughs> nothing like a fancy spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. But um, your business model is so elegantly simple and it's so straightforward and it's just like to the there's so many businesses that have so much going on but like you just have you have two main things that you do and obviously you're working on uh some of like coaching model it's a little bit different but i would love for you to kind of walk us through the worst of worst of all designs model and just share a little bit about the brand shrink and brand up and then we'll kind of unpack the magic as to why you designed it that way yeah, so we are a two-person agency. It's me and Steve, my husband. Um, we have a two-step process. We only work with one to three-person service businesses. First step is our brand shrink. Uh, it's a deep dive interview to understand everything about the client, where they've been, where they are, and where they want to go. And I outline a brief, the brand shrink brief and findings that basically tell them, okay, this is what you need to do to become the badass brand you want to be and achieve the goals you want to achieve. Um, at this moment, I charge $10,000 for that. But when I first started, it was $650. So it's come a long way. Um, based on that brief, a client can take that strategy and 
implement it themselves or they can, I give them an option at the end, okay, we can execute this for you and we'll do it in a one, two or three day brand up. The brand up is an intensive where we execute everything on the list um, in just one, two or three days. So most of our clients are a two day brand up. It means that we are executing the strategy, the design of the brand, the logo, the website, the design and build of the website, the copy, marketing materials, whatever it is. And it's completely launched at 6 p.m. on at the end of the brand up. And for that, we charge $40,000 for the two day. And that's all we have done for the past eight years. Um, and the simplicity of that has made my life so wonderful <laughs> because it not only means that we can execute projects in a, an efficient manner, super profitable, and uh, it allows us to concentrate exclusively on one client at a time. But it also means that when it's launched, it's launched. We don't have any ongoing clients. In between clients, we can travel, we can do our own projects, we can work on our own stuff. And it just got rid of all the BS that I thought was, I thought before was just kind of an inherent part of running a small agency. So that is our model and I love it. And I now think everyone should use it. <laughs> Basically. It's, it's so beautiful and it's so elegant. So obviously we'll kind of, that was hard fought to get to that level of simplicity and those prices, as you just alluded to, I think you just said it was 650 for the brand shrink. And I think you had mentioned before, it was like, you started out with 3k for the, the yep, brand. It was up. 3k and, and now it's 40k. So, Yes, yeah, yep. so exactly. So you move from 650 to 10K for the branching and 3K to 40K for the brand up. So uh, obviously a lot went into that. But before we kind of show how you did that, I would love for you to kind of see, because you work with a lot of businesses, I would love for you to kind of explain kind of what you see as the main pitfalls of a traditional agency model. And you kind of alluded to some of it. It's like you work in such a tightly defined way and you're selling a result and they walk away with the result and you're control of the process. Um, but you know, in client work and can go all over the place. And so I would love for you to kind of outline if somebody could self-identify and just say, yeah, I have an agency and I have those issues. What are some of those kind of main pain points or the issues that you see with a traditional agency model? Oh my gosh. How long do you have? <laughs> it's, it's every aspect. Um, it starts with the very first touch point. Um, the way that, that agencies sell their process usually starts with free strategy sessions, free discovery calls where agencies are trying to figure out what the client wants and they usually follow the client's lead. So the client says, I need a website. And then the agency pitches them in a free proposal what that website will cost. Um, that's huge pitfall number one because it positions you um, not as an authority or an expert. Um, it doesn't show that your time has value. You're giving it away for free. Um, it also uh, means that you are following what the client thinks they need. And if you've ever done creative work and have any sort of strategic mind, you know that clients usually think they need A when they actually need B and C as well, um, which means that you end up doing these projects where you're executing on a client's vision of what they need instead of what they actually need, which means the outcome is usually that projects go on forever, there's scope creep, things change, and all of that is due to a poorly planned uh, strategy in the beginning. Um, also the way, because it all starts like that, the relationship with the clients is usually one where the client is always right. And you do what the client says, which means that you end up being somewhat akin to an outsourced employee or like a, a freelancer who's 
who's hired to be the hands and to execute the client's vision as opposed to an expert who is hired to help create the vision and show them what they don't know they need to get them actually to the result that they're looking for. Um, so those are just a couple of, of the big swaths of what's wrong yeah. with agencies. But the result of those two big things is that you end up doing these projects that go on forever. You end up um, with clients who are nickeling and diming you. They can't afford it or they want to spend less. They need more handholding. They need more calls. They want more revisions. You end up adding so much work to the project. It goes on forever. They don't show up with their content. They don't show up with their photos. And now your timeline has extended. You're getting paid the same. You're chasing <laughs> payments. All of this stuff is going to drive you bonkers. And it's why so many agency owners no matter how much revenue they're bringing in, they're usually maxed out on time. Mm -hmm. And all of that is like what I experienced, even at 250K, we were completely maxed out on time and we were in the hole. <laughs> so it's not because you can't sell things, it's because you're not selling them in a profitable manner. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, with a period at the end of that too. And I think it's, it's, such a it's such a beautiful way that you've designed it. It's a way to show, don't tell what you do, right? It's like, it's, it's like not talk, like we're not doing free proposal. Like you can pay for this. And then I think, I don't know if you specifically said this, but from, from what I saw, it's like you allow people to enroll their brand shake investment into the brand up. Is that correct? So it's like, so, so if you pay 10 K for the brand shrink, you can then, like you said, part ways and continue to implement it yourself, or you can take that 10 K and it, it, it use that to apply to a brand up. So it's like what normally people would be using as the free work, the proposal, hell, the going back and forth and, you know, doing all this free work and not hearing back from them. It's like, they will, because you've, uh, the other stuff we'll talk about today, it's like, you've defined what you do. You get to show, don't tell, and then you respect it. And then you get to keep control of the process instead of everything else. I just, I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It, it really does. It's not just that you're getting paid for that strategic work, but you're actually able to do higher level work and the client is going to uh, value it more and actually get more value out of it. We all value things we pay for more than things that we get for free. So you don't know how many times I have given free advice to people for their businesses where they've just said, thanks so much, and then not done anything about it. It's why I charge so much for what I do, because I need them to value it so they can actually get the results that they're looking for. Yeah, 100%. So let's zoom in a little bit on the brand up. I would love to, for you to kind of talk about some of the earlier days when you discover it. So um, from what I understand, it came from somebody named Evan Horowitz. Would you kind of mind sharing a little bit about what Evan encouraged you to do and then how it kind of started to evolve from there? Yeah, Evan Horowitz, one of my best business coaches so long ago, still a very good friend of mine. Um, he said to me, this was like a year prior to actually doubling down on the brand up method. Um, I was struggling to find clients that were going to pay $30,000. And by my calculations, $30,000 was like the minimum that I needed to get paid considering our overhead and how long these projects took. So I'm, I'm searching for these $30,000 clients. I'm talking to all these people who don't have the money. They all like me. I know a lot of people. I, I hustled pretty hard to get a big network. And I just complained to him one day. I said, you know, I'm talking to all these people who want to hire us, but they don't have the money. And he said, well, what, wh how much money do they have? I said, they have like $3,000. He said, well, what could you do for $3,000? And that's when I, it was clear to me, well, we could do a lot of the same work. The problem is the client. The problem is this project, this project takes forever and I have to deliver it over so much time. If a client would just take what I made them, then we could actually do a lot in like maybe one day of time. So that was the beginning of it. And it, it wasn't something I went in 
full force with. It was actually like a secret package that I kept in my pocket anytime somebody matched up with it. So we just did like a handful of them over that next mm. year. Fast forward a year later to this table, kitchen table moment where I'm stressing out and not sure how we're going to make another dollar. And I have all these proposals out for $30,000 that are not closing and I'm waiting to hear back from them. We looked at that, that offer and we're like, you know what? That actually fulfills on all the things we're trying to do. We want to do the work. We don't want to do the management. So I ended up going back to, um, I think four of those outstanding proposals. And I basically said to them, Hey, I wanted to tell you that proposal is no longer valid, but we actually have this new offering and we can basically do the same exact project for a fraction of the price. The only catch is that you have to trust us and you have to trust us to show up and you're basically going to take what we give you. And they all said, yes, <laughs> they were all because they all had trust in us already enough to even consider a $30,000 project with us. So all of a sudden when it was 3000 or 5000 they were like, yeah, we'll do that. Nope, mm. no problem. And that's how we got our first handful of clients. Yeah. I have no idea where this quote came from, so I'm not going to be able to attribute it, but it's like people are silently, silently begging to be led, you know? And so it's like yes. when you step up and you give them the process, they're looking forward to it. So th you alluded to something there that I think is really important to zoom in on. And I think this came from you doing the diligence and looking at your numbers. And from what I remember correctly from the book, it's you actually found out that $30,000 sounds like a really nice number. Like that sounds like a really sexy number. But from what I remember, it's like you zoomed in and you found out that actually the $3,000 price point because of the time it was invested was significantly more profitable than the the, the cool payday of $30,000. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and how that insight transformed your business? Yes, absolutely. A $30,000 project for us at the time looked like a minimum of six months of work and usually more. And over those six to eight months or more, there were many back and forth meetings. There were in-person meetings. There were presentations. There were extra revisions. All of that added up to what I ended up doing the math on, way more than 10 days of work. So if you look at a $3,000 one day and you just multiply that by 10, you would need 10 $3,000 one days in order to generate $30,000 uh, of client work. So if the $30,000 project takes more than 10 days, you can just plainly see that the $30,000 project is not as profitable as the $3,000 project. And that was a huge light bulb moment for me because that whole time until then, I had just been chasing the top line revenue because $30,000 sounds like a lot of money. And, you know, every time I would close a big project, be like, well, we're fine because we have this cash coming in. When in reality, it was actually costing us money to take those projects. So once I truly understood that, I, I actually had control over my business that I had never had before. And I didn't even know I didn't have it. And that's mm. one of the, the flags I've been flying ever since because I'm like, tap, tap. Like, do you know <laughs> this is how it works? Oh my God. I wish someone had told me. Um, this is a game changer. Well, there you go. Pia has officially shouted it from the rooftops on the podcast. Yes. So, and I would, I would just encourage you listening right now too. If you don't have an agency model, how does this apply to you? There's absolutely, it's like, what is the most expensive thing that you offer? And is it actually the most profitable thing that you offer? Or how can you create a more tightly defined process instead of like the bigger thing? And maybe it'll actually shake out as being, you get to do more of the work that you love instead of all this ongoing stuff. So just some, just some questions for you to think about too. If like, you're like, oh, I don't have an agency. Well, think about that. Cause I think this is all really, really relevant. 
Well, this is um, applicable to any surface business. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. what this, the reason that I don't think people um, realize this is because when you're, when you're selling your services, it's not clear what the cost of goods is, right? When you're selling a product, you know, I got to buy the product for $5 and sell it for $10 and $5 is my profit. When you're selling your services, your time is what you're selling. And most people look at their time as the, the one thing they have plenty of when really it's your most limited resource. So, you know, and I think when people are struggling to get clients, that's a really hard pill to swallow. Okay. Yeah. Easy for you to say, cause you have clients, but I don't have any clients. So I'm struggling to find clients. So time is what I have. But if you don't protect your time, you will end up, no matter what service you're selling, you will end up trading your time for dollars um, at, at usually a very low rate and, and running yourself ragged because you're not thinking systematically about how much time your business actually requires of you. And your business takes a back seat and you spend all of your time working with clients for money. And that ends up just meaning that you're working all the time and you still have no control over how many clients you get, which I think we're going to talk about in a second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You let us right there. This is so exciting. We've alluded to so many things. So we've talked about the brand shrink. We've talked about the brand up. So now let's translate that into what that means for you. And so you have this beautiful thing that you talk about in the book called the four angles of badassery. And I think Mm -hmm. that some of those things that we've mentioned kind of nestle really neatly in here. So would you mind explaining um, I know there's there's four parts to it, so we can we can slow yeah. down and go where, where, zoom in wherever you want. But uh, you're the you're the pro here, so walk us through it. <laughs> yeah, so I I came up with this um, the four angles of badassery as a, a way to kind of clearly show people how to find their point of differentiation. And a big thing that I try to avoid at all costs is any sort of jargon because I think jargon confuses people and it allows people to kind of be lazy about what they're talking about. So when people are talking about your, you know, your value proposition and what you stand for, and I'm not saying these are wrong or anything, I just think they're overused. And so people don't know how to apply them. So the way that people build their brands or try to figure out what's so special about them is they answer these pretty generic questions like, what do you stand for? And everybody says the same thing, right? I stand for great customer service. I stand for honesty. I stand for all this stuff that who doesn't stand for that stuff? And you end up with this generic brand. So I created the four angles. Um, The four angles are uh, your target market, your personality, your sales process, and your, um, your process, like your, your packaged process. I forget what I called them. Um, But uh, it, it works all the time. Like you don't have to have all four of these angles, but the, but you need at least two. And the more, like the stronger each of them are and the more you have, the more differentiated your business is going to be. So a lot of people, when they think about differentiating or niching, they'll think it's just about target market or the audience, right? If I zero in on this industry, then that's my niche and I don't have to think about anything else. But even an industry is still going to, there's still going to be plenty of people who are niched in that industry and it's not going to be enough to make you stand out. Okay. So, so, and also you don't have to niche in an industry. Like I'm not niched in an industry in my agency. I work with one to three person service businesses. That covers so much variety in terms of the industries that I work in. So I wanted to point that out, um, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't have that. That's not the only way to find your point of differentiation. Um, Personality uh, is what a lot of people think of branding, but I define it as your personality, the personality of your brand. It has to be somewhat in contrast to the prevailing personality in your industry. So it's not enough to have 
a personality. It's got to be somehow uh, standing out compared to everyone else in your industry. It doesn't have to stand out in general. It just has to stand out compared to the the status quo. Um, and then, and so, you know, that's a great one, but if that's not you, don't use it, you know, don't make it up. It's got to be authentic to you. And then the last two are the sales process and the process, which are basically alluding to my brand shrink and my brand up. The idea that you have a differentiated and simple way to close clients into your services easily and without a lot of BS. That's what our brand shrink is, right? We sell a brand shrink on a 15 minute phone call. That's it. There's no proposals. Um, And then the process, like we have a very specific process. So people are paying a premium for our process and the fact that we have it. So they're not buying a website from us. They're buying a trust in a process that we've built. So, you know, I have branded all sorts of people and this came out of me branding other businesses as well. And service business after service business, I could always find that they could have at least two of these and usually three, maybe four. And whenever I found at least two of them, all of a sudden their brand became very clear. So that's Mm. one way that I try to just take it out of the world of jargon and like these overused ideas and give people a completely different way to think about how they can differentiate themselves in the market. Beautiful. I, such a great overview of the the four angles of badassery. I would love to zoom in on each of these just a little bit because sure. I have my my exported Kindle notes right here of all the things I was like, ooh, sure. I want I want to ask this intricacy here. This is so beautiful. So uh, this is what I, this is one of the things I I highlighted for the target market. It says for your target market's account, it must be specific enough that your ideal clients would hear about your business and self identify mm. as your perfect client. I think that's absolutely beautiful. So I would love to ask like, what are some of the so somebody we we've all heard the target market conversations. Like you said, it's kind of like one of the things we talk about all the time, but what are some of the biggest mistakes that somebody maybe that even thinks that they know how to define their target market? What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see some of these brands making when it comes to not being clear enough to allow people to self-identify with, yes, I am your perfect fit client? Yeah. Well, the, the most obvious one you would think is more obvious is, um, I specialize in these three industries, (laughs) which is an oxymoron, right? Can't specialize in multiple spaces. Um, Another one is uh, focusing on an industry without focusing on a size of industry. So Mm. one of the things, and and now I'm, I'm talking a little more specifically to like small businesses, small service businesses, but I do think this does apply generally. Uh, The idea that, you know, if you specialize in IT companies, for example, um, Working with a one-person IT consultant is very different from working with a $50 million IT business, so much so that you're not a specialist working with both of them. You have to pick one because the the strategies are going to be different, like the background and experience you have to have to give them a really great result are going to be different. So um, not being specific about the size or the kind of business, if you're in business, um, those are two. And and when I describe that in the book and I say they need to be able to self-identify, like what we're looking for is a click. We're looking for someone to go, oh yeah, that's exactly me. And if you're not specific enough for somebody to be able to say they're speaking to me, then it's not specific enough. And it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It just means that you can't count it as one of your four angles. Remember I said you need at least two. So you just can't count it. It's not that you have to do it, but obviously it's better if you can. Yeah, just like the profitability question before, like I would encourage anyone listening to just just like to 
think about who like who your perfect clients have been in the past and like maybe all the red tape and bureaucracy that's associated with landing a client that has a hundred employees and getting to that person, <laughs> you can save for all those issues. If you just target somebody that's a little bit smaller and you can get to the decision makers a lot quicker. So I love that. Let's, let's go into the, the personality component a little bit. Cause you talked a little bit about, you know, what do you stand for? And it, like, at the end of the day, it's like, we can, you know, sing Kumbaya and dance around a fire at the end of the day and we're all happy. So you talk a little bit about uh, asking the question, what do you stand against instead? So would you mind maybe walking us through like once you're, if you're sitting across from a client in a brand shrink, when you ask them that question, what are you trying to pull out? And then once they pull it out, how are you applying that to their sites and their, their messaging and all that stuff? Yeah. So I'll, I'll use an example. Um, to illustrate this point. Uh, One of our earlier clients is Stash Wealth, right? So I talk about them in the book. Um, They're a financial services firm for millennials making under 500,000 or who have less than 500,000 in um, investable assets, which is the cutoff for all the big financial investors. So when I asked them, what are you against? They were against everything in the financial sector, right? They were against these big corporate conglomerates. They were against people not working with anyone who doesn't have a certain amount of money. They were against dry and boring and uh, corporate and blue and (laughs) all, all the things. And the reason that was so helpful for me as we built our brand, uh, their brand, was I got to then look at the brand they they currently had that they had had built. And I said, everything about this is screaming the very things that you're against. And when I juxtaposed these two things, they saw it immediately, right? They had basically built another Merrill Lynch blue brand. And it just had a few words that were like, we're not your father's financial firm, you know? And I was like, okay, that's not going to cut it. If you're, you're telling me you're against this boring, this is so boring, you know? So on the flip side, um, like one of the lines I wrote for her that they still have to this day, um, get your financial shit together. And I said to her, and she was like, I don't know if we can say that. I mean, which you should laugh at if you ever go to her website, because now they're that their voice, she has it's all completely, over. <laughs> I mean, all over. I mean, they really embrace this voice even farther than I could have gotten them. But when I first said that to her, she was like, we can't say that in the financial industry. Like they will eat us alive, you know? And I said, but that's exactly why you need to do it because you're against them. If you're against them, you have to do things that they're not going to like. So it's, it's just as much to inform the brand as it is to inform the owner of the brand of what, what they need to have the guts to do. Because if they truly stand against that thing, then they need to not be that thing. And then we can look at, well, what's the opposite of that? It looks like this. And it should be scary because if you're really making a mark and you're doing something different, like it's not going to be status quo and that can be scary. So Mm. that's just one example. Love that. Okay. So again, I'm always a recapper. So we talked about Mm -hmm. the target market. We talked about the personality. I'm now I'm zooming in on my notes for the lead product and the sales process. And just to correlate this directly for people, if you haven't made it already, this is your brand shrink, the 10 K process that you use right now. And so I thought this was brilliant. What I highlighted here is like the formula to build a lead product. You had five steps. It must be the first thing you do with a client. It must have a valuable deliverable at the end and work as a standalone product. 
your lead product must solve a problem for a client, a problem they know they have. It must be a fixed price with a fixed process. And five, it must be branded. So I know we don't have time to go into all of them, but if mm-hmm. I if I were to, I highlighted one of them, and that is the mm-hmm. fact that it must be branded. Um, so we and we can zoom into the other ones as well. But I think this is really important. It's like you named your thing the brand shrink, right? And you, I think you walked through your other example of just the financial client. It's like you help them name their first product too. So uh, what are some suggestions that you might have for someone to start thinking about formulating and packaging this lead product so that it calls out to that target market that we decided earlier. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, stash wealth, theirs is the stash plan. I mean, it's like an obvious one, right? Um, It doesn't always have to be on the name of your business, but that one worked out really well. Um, The reason I want it to be branded is because we're trying to get away from selling an audit or a discovery session or a strategy session or a VIP day, right? Like that's what people, they just... It's kind of, I call it kind of lazy, no offense, but like I call it kind of like lazy copy when you just call it the thing everybody calls it. And if you want to charge premium prices or you want, you want to sell something that nobody else has, you have to give it a brand. That's mm-hmm. what branding does. It takes you, it puts you into a category of one. So while you can buy a discovery session or a two hour consulting thing with most branding agencies, you can only buy a brand shrink from me right? Mm -hmm. And even the people that I teach how to do brand shrinks, you still can't buy a brand shrink from them. You have to buy the brand shrink from me. So all of a sudden, this thing has a lot of cachet. And that is just one piece of it. But it does allow you to, it it gives scarcity, it creates um, a more premium experience, and it makes it easier for clients to want to buy it as opposed to, again, like, I don't want to pay you for a discovery call or I'm going to shop around because lots of people are offering discovery calls and a lot of people are doing it for free actually. So why would I pay you for that? Yeah. And I would just add on top of a specific or pull out something that you said right there too. It's like people kind of have like an association of what a discovery call is, right? Or like those things, it's kind of like, oh, I've done one of those before. But like if you completely take yourself out of that category, like no one knows what a brand shrink is because you define the process. So it's like, it doesn't occupy like a negative kind of weird undertone because you can't control if people have given you shitty discovery calls before (laughs) but you can't control if you if you've done an incredible brand shrink right that is such a good point and when it comes to strategy there's really no way to evaluate how good someone is a strategy unless you either read a lot of content that they've written about their strategic thinking or you've had an experience with them Mm -hmm. so the only way to get around that is to create something that to your point they don't have any association with so that they can come in fresh yeah. I want to zoom in on one more of those components of, of building a lead product. Yeah. It must have a valuable deliverable at the end and work as a standalone product. So we kind of talked yes. about this, but like, as you encourage people to create a lead product, how, how do you encourage them to go about thinking what the result or the deliverable is that they should tackle at the very beginning of this process? Yeah. Well, so when I wrote the book, I was really writing that for all service businesses. Um, and over the years, now that I've taught it to so many people, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it really is a written brief. Um, like I, I kind of kept it vague because I imagined it could be a lot of things, but actually, no, I, I take that back. Like it's a written brief. It's a strategy. Like I don't use the word strategy in any of the sales process and I don't recommend it because most clients and customers don't get what strategy is. And this kind of feels like you're paying for something you don't really want. Um, But ultimately, that's what it is. It's a plan. How are you going to get someone from A to B, from where they are to where they want to go? Here's what I think 
you need to do. And and that's really, that's always going to be the deliverable. And mm-hmm. that is incredibly valuable. Like people, they don't buy strategy, but when they get a plan that illuminates what needs to happen to get them to their goals, I mean, that is sometimes priceless because it can stop, it can stop you from doing the thing you may maybe we're about to do that was going to take you on the completely wrong path. And you just imagine the amount of money and time that can save somebody. So, um, yeah, very question, but yeah. And I, I want, I, no, that, no, that's perfect. I, cause and I, and I want to clarify a little bit here because it's like, we've talked about this being a very tightly defined process, right? So it's your process that you're walking them through, but I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, like it's not, I would assume it's not a prescriptive thing. Like it's a very discovery, like you're interviewing them, you're finding out more information about them. So how do you, make that balance between it being your process and it just not being like, here's a fire hose of information. Good luck. And here's a written brief afterwards. So like, where's that? Yeah. I I actually talk very little in the, um, in the experience. So it's really an interview. Um, I I think a a great discovery call or strategic interview or whatever you want to call it. um, The best ones are where the person who's guiding it is just asking really thoughtful questions and really good follow-up questions. And, you know, that's something that you, that's a skill you build with practice. That's not something you can just read about and then learn. But the very act of doing that comes with experience. And what I have found, and I was like this too, is in the beginning, when you don't have a lot of confidence in your knowledge base, you end up firing hosing with people with information because you kind of want to prove how much you know. Whereas the more you understand, the less you have to do that because you know that a really strategically placed question that gets a client thinking and realizing I never thought about it that way is actually the most powerful way to present your authority and and understanding of something. When you ask a question that gets a client to realize something they didn't understand, that's when they go, okay, I'm yours. Whatever you think I should do, I'm going to do it. And that's where the prescription happens. So the prescription happens in the brief afterwards, not in the interview itself. Mm. I would just encourage anybody, and I don't, I might get this wrong. So this might be before, after this comes out, I should be before, but I interviewed Dr. Mark Goulston a few weeks ago. He was a former FBI hostage negotiation trainer and one of the top, top leaders on suicide prevention. And so like he had all this content, but like one of the things that he stuck out, that stuck out to me that he said is like, like making people feel felt like if somebody's in a depressive Mm -hmm. episode or feeling terrible about themselves, it doesn't, you can't prescribe anything to them because they're just going to like, they feel shitty about themselves. So it's like, until you connect with them and make them feel safe and comfortable as a human, then they can open up and he can prevent, you know, crazy hostage negotiation situations. But here too, I think that directly applies to what we're talking about as a client. Cause it's like, if you're just fire hosing people with stuff and they don't really feel like you understand them and what their brand is about and all that kind of stuff. Um, I can see that that's the parallel that I just made there between suicide prevention and branding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, you're hundred percent right. You're really, you're really finding the universal thread through all things, which is that people want to feel heard and understood. And that is yeah. absolutely the number one goal of the interview itself. Yeah. And then obviously they feel even more clarity once you, if you did ask the right questions, if you did pull that out and then that translates into their work and they get to view a more expressed version of themselves specifically for branding. But I would imagine anybody listening to, it's like you have the thing that you're helping your clients, the people that you're helping with to do. Um, so like, that's like, that's super valuable. So I appreciate you making that distinguishing yeah. thing. So let's, let's dive into the last, uh, the last angle, the, 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 the product at the end. So this is kind of, again, this is your brand uh, I, I'm forgetting the last name. What is it? What the is brand it? Brand up. Brand up. Okay. So this is yeah. your, your core 40, 40 K thing. It's one to two days. I, I can imagine somebody hearing that. It's like, 
40k for one to two days like how do you even manage that what does that even look like so walk us through and maybe <laughs> share some of the how the sausage is made <laughs> if you made yeah. like, like how do you how is that even possible to do a 40k day in two days how do you build that yeah. value up for a client so first of all, I frame it as a, a two day because it's really just two days of the client's time, right? So we don't show up with an empty canvas on day one right. and then build this whole thing in front of them, right? We actually build the entire project ahead of time. Um, the reason we're able to do that is because we have done such a thorough job understanding them and getting clarity around who they are, where they are, and what they need to get where they need to go. And we've gotten sign off on that. So the brand shrink is a critical piece of doing a proper brand up, which is why I would never suggest to somebody that they even try to do an intensive if they haven't learned how to do a lead product in some capacity. Um, so once we do this, this brand shrink and we truly understand what it is, and we've built that rapport and gotten that kind of... Um, that trust from the client, well, then we can just go to town. Like, great. I have now, tr we have transferred the problem from you to me. And now we're going to take it and we're going to fix it. We're going to create this amazing thing. And the, the magic of the brand up is really the process through which we take a client um, over those two days and how we position the work, how we show the work, how we get their feedback, how we make revisions. And we do it in such a way that we're, you know, making revisions in real time, but there's almost, there's, there's almost never anything to change. It's usually a little tweak here, a little tweak there. Um, and we launched the website at the end. So those two days are the finale of the project, even mm. though for the client, it's the beginning and the end. Yeah. And I can imagine too, like I'm thinking from a design perspective, it's like, if you weren't using this model, it would probably like, Hey, we did this thing. Can you give feedback on this little part? And like, the, and then yep. it's just like, so by, by doing all the work up front after the brand shrink, you get to know them then it's like you get to knock out all the feedback that would, it essentially eliminates all the back and forth that would happen throughout the entire thing. Right the BS, the we call yeah, it. Yeah, all the BS, love that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's let's say someone's like listening to this and they're like, okay, it makes sense for a clearly defined process, but Pia, that's so boring. Like I'm doing the same thing over and over and over again. Oh yes. What do you say, what do you say to, the, to that, that person right there listening? <laughs> oh yes. Um, well, my snarky uh, response is, um, there's nothing boring about getting paid $40,000 for a couple of days of work. Um, you can, you can fill the rest of your time with whatever you want. Um, my less snarky response is there's nothing boring about, um, becoming the, you know, Mr. Miyagi of your craft. Uh, it did, it's, it didn't happen overnight that we went from 3000 to 40,000, right? Every iteration and every step of that, it was four and then it was 5,000 then it was 6,000 and then it was seven, eight, nine, 10, 15, 20, 25, like, and every time we raised it, or rather every time we even did one afterwards, there was a whole debriefing session about, okay, what went great? What could we do better? Where could we add value? Where could we tighten it up? So every single project was a, um, a better iteration of the last. And we, to this day, continue to tweak it and make it better and better each time, um, which allows us to get, become more skilled every, as a branding person, um, you know, it's a, it's a process, it's a framework, but every client we work with is completely different. So even though they have a lot of similar challenges, the brand is like birthed anew each time, mm -hmm. right? None of our clients' brands look or sound anything alike because they have to be specific to the client. And it's just within a framework. So I think it's a little short-sighted when, and I hear that all the time, by the way, like creatives, especially, they're like, I don't want to do the same thing. I'm going to get so bored. 
like there's nothing boring about repeating a process and making it better and better. I mean, do you think it's boring when I don't know why the first thing that came to me was like a professional ballet dancer. Like, are they bored because they're like getting better and better or like an Olympian, like an Olympic runner? Is that boring every time they get a little bit faster and a little bit faster? Like, of course not. It's the opposite. It's kind of thrilling. So um, I would encourage people who think that it's boring to look at themselves and say, what do I think is like, am I planning on not ever iterating and growing with this? Because if you are, it doesn't matter what you're working on. It doesn't have to be mm. boring at all. Yeah. So much brilliance there it's like tightening tightening the parameters that you're playing with just eliminates so much confusion and it makes the process so much tighter and so much easier to optimize when you have like only a few variables is, is yes. composed to having a lot more and i highlighted this too so this is this is pia's brilliance this is not my brilliance mm -hmm. here but i'm like this is this is this is awesome it's Wonder. like when you're when you're cut when you're other people that do not do this, they're spending all their time customizing each client, like each thing for the client. So it takes a lot longer to become an expert because yes, they're learning from each project, but because each product project is so different, it takes a lot longer to really develop your craft and refine your craft. Whereas if you clearly stuck within this box that you clearly defined, that that's where the magic happens. So super cool. Not just that, but, you know, I think that it actually results in more value for the client because now all your energy is only on the thing that actually matters for the client's outcome, as opposed to wasting all of this energy on all of this stuff that doesn't really matter and is kind of BS back and forth. And now you're exhausted by all of that BS, but none of that is being poured into the actual outcome of the work. And that's what they're paying for. So yes, you can get paid more for less work because your work is more focused on the part that actually delivers value. Mm. Love that. So I know we talked about earlier about talking. So I, I, first of all, I would encourage everybody to right now, before we even get to the end, go pick up your copy of Badass Your Brand, The Impatient Thank Entrepreneur's you. Guide to Turning Expertise into Profit. I have the Audible version. I have the Kindle version. I listened to it on a run last week and I highlighted the hell out of it. So it is fantastic. And like I said, I had two friends already bought it. So go grab it. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about was the 50-25-25 rule, but I think it might be a little bit hard to cram that in with the time we have remaining. So I will <laughs> leave that as a dot, dot, dot for you. I would highly encourage you to go pick up the book and grab that. Uh, I would rather zoom in a little bit more on, on a few more smaller topics and then we can kind of wrap things up. Sure. One of the things you talk about in the book that I think is so brilliant and this, I'll, I'll, I'll frame it from the perspective of another guest that came on the show. Um, his name is Blair Dunkley. He's a psychological profiler and he talks about how some of the best companies out there have created buying cultures instead of selling cultures because people love to buy, but they hate to be sold. So like, if you think about the way Tesla, if you were, I, I test drove a Tesla a few months back, it's like, there's no salesperson there. They're not trying to pitch you it. It's like, here's the car. And if you want to come buy it, like come buy it. Like that's not a, there's no person sitting across trying to get you to buy this shit or, or Costco or, or, or Trader Joe's is another great example. It's like, People go to Trader Joe's because there's fancy, cool stuff and you want to buy it. So I think that that's something you talk a lot about in the book. It's like a, a selling mindset versus an anti-selling mindset. And I think that for many people and myself included, I'm trying to get a lot better at this. But um, what does that mean, a selling mindset versus an anti-selling mindset? And how can you accomplish that with your branding if you did it effectively? Yeah, I mean, I, I teach people things like the the non-sales sales conversation, right? Like there's nothing to sell here. And I genuinely am never looking to sell somebody on on any of my services because I really don't want to work with anybody who isn't a perfect fit. So it's the idea of going into every interaction, being super clear about who you're looking for and who you can really help and, and what's going to be most 
like best for your business as much as best for the client. So looking for those perfect fits, which turns you into more of like a detective who's just asking questions and trying to get to the heart of of what they actually need and figure out if you're a good fit for it, which means you're looking for a no as much as you're looking for a yes. And when you go into it with that mindset, the con- there's no there's no sale, right? Either it's apparent to both of you that it's a fit or it's not, which is why having something like a brand shrink lead product is so helpful because it doesn't turn into, okay, well now I got to go sell you. Now I got to go figure out how I'm going to pitch you this proposal. It's like, great. Well, we're obviously a perfect fit. Here's the next step. And that's what it is. And you can buy it or not buy it. And it's all gravy for me. And I say I I close hundred percent of uh, the client, my ideal clients, because if you don't close, you were an ideal client, right? So, yeah. uh, and that's kind of the mindset I go into with every sales conversation. Mm, so beautiful. And like, I, I know the last chapter of your book, you talk about saying no too, and it gives you that power to say no once you, and obviously like you can get better results for people. So it's like, why would you waste your time taking other people that aren't good fits? But it's like, it takes the work that P has done that, that you've talked about today, which I, I need to go through the workbook more myself. So I will be doing that after this, <laughs> just to, mm-hmm. to refine the process a little bit more. So uh, really, really admire the work that you've done, Pia. It's really, really cool. So let's wrap things up uh, a little bit here. And I, I have a, uh, a question that I'd love to ask that I ask all guests, and then we can ask where people can find out more about you. But uh, I would love to hear Pia, what, what does happiness mean to you today? What is your kind of definition of what, what makes Pia happy? It could be, um, just from a personal life or an encompassing fulfillment perspective. What does happiness mean for Pia? Yeah. Um, you know, there's like the answer you want to give, but like the thing that lights me up most, I notice it over and over again is like when I get to see people doing something that is kind of fulfilling on their say potential, but like I, I really have fallen into this coaching role. And the thing I get most excited is about is whenever somebody posts something and it's like, they did it and it totally worked exactly how it's supposed to. And they're so excited. And I'm like, you did it. Like that gets me more amped than almost anything else. Um, and I can tell because I also get really frustrated with people when I'm like, look, it's right in front of you. Why aren't you doing it? Like uh, that drives me bonkers. So I know that the opposite of that is the thing that really lights me up. Love that. Awesome. Well, Pia, where can people find out about the incredible work that you've going on? We've already mentioned you can go grab uh, Badass Your Brand from Amazon, unless there's anybody else that you, anywhere else you would want to send them to get the book. But where can people find out about your work? Um, yeah, well, you can go to nobsagencies.com. Um, I'm really focused on actually teaching other small agencies how to implement this process. I, I, after the book came out for years, I had small agency owners just like ours saying, yeah, but how do you do it? And so in this past year, I decided to like open the kimono and just teach everything about it. And it has been a thrilling ride because it is Mm. so fun to dissect your own process and then teach it to people and then see that the process, like it's not like, it's not because I'm so good, right? It's because this process really works. So I get to see other people implement it and have the same results, be able to present a whole brand in a couple of hours and have it completely uh, approved like on the spot. That is so fun. So nobsagencies.com is where I talk about that. Cool. Go check all that out. That'll be linked up wherever you're listening to this right now. And I just want to have a really quick conversation with you listening right now. And I want to say, if you are brand new, this is the first episode you've ever listened to out of all the places you could be. You do, you chose to click on the episode with Pia. I'm so glad you decided to do that today. And I appreciate you for coming 
coming and listening. And I hope that you come and listen week after week. And if you're returning, I say it every week. I don't get sick of saying it. You know how much I appreciate you for returning. And whether you are a new friend or an old friend, my request is always the same. And that is if you have heard something today that impacted you, my life has absolutely been changed by podcast, whether it was Pia's story of uh, getting off an airplane and hanging out with Aragorn and jumping off on the plane or her kitchen table moment or the four angles we talked about, we covered a lot of ground today. This can absolutely change someone's life. You share it with them. So whether you choose to do that or not, uh, that would, it would, it would, it would, uh, impact Pia it would be grateful for me as well. Uh, but whether you choose to do that or not, I appreciate you so much for listening and Pia, any final words you want to say before we finish off for today? I'm just amazed at the depth of this interview as, as promised. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. It was really fun.